Vim is a middleware company. We essentially build a layer that on one end interfaces on top of majority of the ambulatory EHRs. Health insurance companies, they ship patients' data. Vim is then distributing the data and actions into those endpoints in the form of apps that sits on top of those EHRs, on top of our layer, and are able to engage with clinicians and have read and write capability into the EHR. Welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast, where you can learn from entrepreneurs and investors who are driving progress in healthcare and life science around the globe. Welcome back. Now, if you tune into the show a lot, you know that healthcare is ripe for disruption. Legacy systems, bogged down workflows, create data silos, and frustrate both patients, providers, and payers, and everybody in between. That's where Vim comes in. This episode, we talk with Oran Afek, co-founder and CEO of Vim, a company using AI to build the app store for healthcare. Vim already reaches 20 million patients by integrating with electronic health records. But now, with new partnerships and investment from Sequoia and other top-tier VCs, Vim aims to hit 100 million patients next year. Effect gives us the inside story on Vim's pivots, people, and path to profitability. This is a fantastic conversation. I hope you enjoy it. I'm going to hand it over to my colleague, Guy. Hi, and welcome to the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. My name is Guy Spiegelman, and I am the EMEA lead for healthcare life science startups at AWS. And joining me today, I have the pleasure to welcome to the show, Ron Effect, the co-founder and CEO of Vim. And today we're going to really discuss how we can make access to healthcare just that much more seamless using Vim's amazing technology. But first, Alon, welcome. How are you doing today? Hey guys, thanks for having me, man. Before we get going, I'd really like to learn a little bit more about yourself. Can you introduce yourself, how you got to this position today or how you got to founding Vim? And then we'll take it from there. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in Israel, started a few companies back early on after my university time. The first one was really focused on delivering kind of application into feature phones. The one thing that struck me back in the day, you know, it was a pre-smartphone or a pre-iPhone. You had to take everything through mobile operators. They're kind of gatekeepers for innovation. I don't know if you remember that kind of era. And then that was a really frustrating thing for me. And just seeing how the iPhone liberated and democratized access to content and apps and wealth of innovation that created the pretty amazing downstream effects. Things like Uber and, and whole industries changed with smartphones. One could argue that even Tesla became available thanks to the smartphone and the advancement in lithium-ion batteries and those kind of things, right? So that was really inspiring to me. And I decided that for the next thing I'll do, I, I really want, want to be in a place where I could enable innovation at scale. I, I could enable others to build stuff to overcome existing silos and challenges in existing systems. Healthcare is very similar to what we had in the pre-smartphone era with mobile carriers. Uh, it is controlled by a small number of very concentrated, powerful players. And while they do want to innovate, well, they do want to break through this IT as, as a big impediment for them to, to move fast and, and enable innovation at scale and work with many different vendors. Data silos are difficult. HIPAA is difficult. EHR infrastructure is not necessarily communicating with, with other uh, type of infrastructure in healthcare. And so I was really inspired by trying to think through the problem of interoperability in healthcare early on. 
and how to really democratize access and accelerate innovation. So that, that was the motivation behind them. Obviously, it took a few years for me to, to understand that and alongside my co-founders, uh, but that was the kind of the premise. All right. So I just want to pick up what you said. So your inspiration came from a, a parallel industry, the telecommunications in- industry, where we all used to be at the mercy of these big telcos, right? They were not just the gatekeepers. They controlled everything. They put out the standards. You basically had to do what they said or you weren't in the game. While we've made progress, there's still a way to go. I'd, I'd like your opinion on that. Yeah, that's a really good point. We definitely made ama- amazing progress even since I started this company with my co-founders almost 10 years ago, the market have changed tremendously, which is a really amazing thing. At the same time, if you are a startup company starting today and you have this incredible AI-powered co-pilot for physicians who can help to improve the leverage of a primary care physician tenfold by providing better care at lower cost and automating some of the actions, like you have this amazing intervention. How long and how much money you would burn to take this to the top 10 payers in the country and let's say powering it up for 100,000 providers in the United States. It will take you forever. Not a lot of companies today are able to get through this kind of initial integration hurdle and put their innovation in the hands of those those big players in in the ecosystem where the incentives are more aligned, the integration is aligned and so on and so forth. if you're an early stage company, you're going to raise money, your seed round, A round, B round are 100% going to go toward trying to break through those silos for the most part versus like really investing in your innovation. So let me switch to another industry, just an analogy again. Take Stripe as an example. I'm sure that all of us at some point had some sort of an idea early on about building some sort of an e-commerce website back in the day. Right? You and I from the same generation, you would probably wanted to sell something online at some point, right? The biggest hurdle that I remember 20 years ago is, oh, now I need to deal with credit card, with chargebacks, with storage, with PCI compliance. And now the world is simple. Now you can just use Stripe or Shopify. You can download SDK and you have everything supported out of the box. Even whether you're a small merchant or Uber or Lyft, yeah, you can use one of those middlewares, right? And that reduces a lot of the initial hurdle for you to get yourself out there in the market with the capabilities needed for doing this big lift of dealing with credit cards and all those things. And it's not trying to self-promote or anything, but Amazon launched the AWS cloud and all of a sudden that made the whole journey for startups that much easier, right? Let's just go back one step. And I just want you to introduce Vim, but we've just met for the first time. Hi, Ron. Tell me about your company. So Vim is a middleware company. Think about Stripe or Plaid. We're doing this in healthcare. We essentially build a layer that on one end interfaces on top of majority of the ambulatory, for those who don't know, are the systems of records that physicians are using in their offices to see the patient, bill for the visits, take uh, medical notes, create a referral, and and so on and so forth. There's a lot of permutations of how the systems are built. There's hundreds of different brands and and they're not necessarily communicating with each other uh, and the standards they have created to expose their data to the outside world are not always consistent and easy to work with and flexible. So we build this middleware that sits on top of those EHRs and we're doing this with computer vision and machine learning and some other elements that uh, make it more seamless uh, to integrate and flexible to work on top of it. Uh, And we abstract the layers of those EHRs to outside developers with different endpoints that developers can then access and build applications on top of them. So we've done that. 
And at the same time, we went to big payers. Uh, so without calling out names, the, most of the national payers and many of the large regional payers in the United States, the, the insurance, the health insurance companies uh, are VIM customers. And they ship patients' data, whether it's the patient's health history or open care gaps or diagnosis gaps or different things that are prior authorization rules that they want to put in front of physicians at the point of care and make those things actionable at the point of care. They ship that through Vim is then distributing the data and actions into those endpoints in the form of apps that sits on top of those EHRs, on top of our layer, and are able to engage with clinicians and have read and write capability into the EHR. So Vim is some sort of a middleware, an obstruction layer, if you want, sits on top of those EHRs and connects, on the other hand, with large payers to then make the payer-provider interaction more seamless and interconnected. So again, that's what Vim is today. And I can tell you where we're heading next after building that foundation. We'll get to the next, but later on, I want to just focus on the here and now and the, the current value proposition. So what I'm hearing is you're essentially um, improving the clinician experience. Would that be a fair to say that you're trying to improve the clinician experience and the whole workflow? Like, can you maybe take this to something very specific, like where you think Vim has helped a clinician or a particular group of clinicians and patients, where it's made an impact, where either improving care, saving costs, any of that kind of thing. Yeah, let's actually give two examples based on what you just said. So let's talk about saving costs. If you're seeing a patient and she needs, let's say an MRI or a surgery, yep. as a clinician, you need to go through a lot of work and process to submit what's called prior authorization. You need to go to a separate portal, start filling everything manually, pre-fill the data, and then submit the auth, get a response. Everything takes time. There are denials you need to deal with and so on and so forth. So usually as a small practice, you're going to have a full-time person, half-time person you need to pay for to deal with all the prior authorization process on the back end. At the same time, you also have a lot of requests coming from those payers like, I need a medical chart of patient X, patient Y, whatever, right? So you have all those administrative requests that are being requested by payers and other third parties that you need to deal with. Vim helps to automate the submission or the chart retrieval or the pre-filling of those different workflows. So you don't need to deal with them manually. Everything can be pre-populated from your EHR based on the context that you work on and then streamlined back to the payers. That saves you 50 to 60% of the work. Now, with Vim is not the one determining whether something gets authorized or not. That's a payer or a vendor that have the rules engine uh, on their end. But what we do is we help as the last mile, the middleware that helps to connect that third-party portal or third-party rules engine into the clinical workflow so we can pull out the, the required data and the required context for a submission process. And by that, reducing almost you know, 60% plus of the work required so if you had a full-time person, maybe you need a half-time person. So when you say the work required, that's the, the, the time associated with the administration around pre-authorization? Correct. Correct. And traditionally, would the clinician do that themselves or would they have an assistant doing it or both? It depends. Send them a third of the practice. Obviously, the clinician have something to do with it because they need to select what is the reason I need that surgery to happen or the MRI to happen. So they, they have some stuff to do with it. But for the most part, the clinician will delegate the submission process for an assistant. And, and we save that type of work. Is this a particular challenge in the US or do you think there are other markets that also 
have these kind of challenges. I think that just like here in the United States where we have EHR vendors, EHR companies that build their systems quite a while ago and they haven't necessarily always caught up with recent technology, you're always going to have outside requirements like fire off, but yep. a lot of things that you and I may talk about in a few minutes that, you know, there, there's a plethora of an ecosystem that you guys know likely better than anyone else on AWS, a yep. plethora of ecosystem of vendors that try to connect with providers at the point of care and ask them to do certain stuff that's just going to continue to come. And uh, I think that everyone needs to catch up with the progression of technology, with progression of AI, uh, and that connectivity is not always trivial and straightforward because there's so many things you need to account for. To your point, uh, Vim is also looking into other markets that suffer from similar problems, uh, not too far from where you live right now in Europe, to really uh, help with solving very similar problems, like how peers and providers interact, but also how third-party companies, technology companies, and providers interact as well. Look, you're an Israeli company, but you deliberately chose the U.S. market as your first market. Absolutely. The U.S. market is 20% of GDP. There is a lot of willingness to spend here to save money because it's impossible to have the spend here being 3x more than any other OECD country on a per capita basis. It's unbelievably expensive. And so there's like just scale and willingness to change and to innovate and excitement. So that's definitely the first market. I think in other markets, the change we could likely drive is more incremental than transformative than what we can do here, uh, because most other countries just have a single payer system and things are already pretty streamlined. Uh, but there definitely is a lot of other benefits we can drive in other markets. I'm happy to talk about that. For the people developing a startup, let's say in Europe or in Australia or wherever they are, what something that I try and tell them is one of the strong things about the Israeli ecosystem is that our startups actually think US from day one. And I think there's a lot to be learned from that in terms of value creation for the startup. We're talking about helping the healthcare system and the clinicians, but this podcast is also around how can we give tips to entrepreneurs and founders who are thinking what their strategy should be. Would you say that's fair that in Israel and yourselves as well, understanding this is the biggest market, there's so much to disrupt here, let's focus on the US. Uh, yeah, I think it's really smart, guy. The United States has such a unique market because it's a many-to-many -many relationship. Every clinician here in the United States, they see 20 different payers, including the government, but also a lot of private insurance. They see some cash payers. They see a, a huge array of different payers and different rules and different interactions. And then every payer needs to work with hundreds of thousands of different physicians across different segments. They don't work with a single hospital system. So there's many-to-many -many relationship in both sides. And it's a marketplace. It's the only marketplace I know in healthcare. You can argue that China and India and Brazil maybe have some similar, but that creates an opportunity. If you can figure it out here, there is so much innovation can happen that would never happen in Israel because Israel is so already yeah. built and entrenched right. and developed. And so anything new is going to take ages to bring in. And here, if someone likes something, they can make it happen and then it can scale. And, and as you said, I think it's a great point to start. I love that term, many to many. Is is that a known term or is that like something that you guys came up with? I literally made it up right now on this call. I'd love to get these kind of things out of the podcast, but I think that is a really good learning and I'm going to use it if that's okay. 100%, yeah. yeah well, no, that's right. Thank you. <laughs> when I speak to startups all the time and understand the complexity of the market, I talk about payers and providers and patients, but like many to many, that's great. It's actually makes it, it's a very simple way to describe what's actually quite complex. So thank you for that. Look, I, I want to segue into more of the startup journey. 
What was it like in the early days, fundraising? What were some of the blocks that you had along the way? How did you overcome them? Tell us a little bit about some war stories from the beginning of him. No pun intended, but actually there is a war story involved. So here's the thing. As an Israeli, myself and and my co-founders, we didn't have a lot of experience in healthcare. And raising money for a U.S. first startup that is focused on digital health. And, and by the way, we didn't start as a middleware company per se. It was a different approach to the market. We tried to actually go patient first, not provider first. It evolved over the years. The, the, yep. the original premise was like, we can do something disruptive in U.S. healthcare. That did not resonate with local tier one funds in the United States. Why would you guys bring any type of value? You haven't grown up here. You know a thing or two about technology, but you know nothing about U.S. healthcare. And I actually got similar responses. And a very good friend, actually a military friend of mine, said, look, there's a huge market. I trust you guys. Here's some money. Go figure it out. That was the first Sequoia Capital check we got that was based on pure trust from a, a, a good friend of mine called Tom Morgenstern, right? It's like pure trust. That's it. So Sequoia, the big VC fund, that they, was their Israel office? Yes. Okay. Exactly. And you knew this person from the army? Correct. So it was like, you're smart guys. There's a lot to disrupt. You'll figure something out. He knew that we're going to go all in and would never let him down. You guys go figure it out. <laughs> you're willing to sacrifice your 30s on something you don't understand. I trust you. Go do it. You mentioned that you did start somewhere else and you pivoted, obviously, several times. But I, I get that as an investor because I also used to be an investor. You know, what I wanted to see in founders is absolute stubbornness and tenacity to get to the goal and absolute flexibility on the way to get there. Yeah. And by the way, that was the, the same thesis for our A rounds. Again, Andrew Perlman from Red Point Ventures, they became our biggest investor out of San Francisco. When we came to them, we had a bunch of ideas. They loved the market. They loved the thesis. They loved the team. We had some early commercial traction and they funded us all the way through the B round and the C round. And, uh, Again, it was a similar thesis. People's first, you guys are going to figure it out. They knew it's not going to be like a straightforward, super established market. There are like 100 other middleware companies in healthcare. We do something incredibly better that improves something and then we can get a wedge in and sell. It's not like that. The market is not super developed and it wasn't very developed when we first got in. So they needed to believe the vision and need to believe the team. And, mm-hmm. and get some initial conviction because it's an A round. They need to see some commercial traction. But then really continue to support the company through the B round and the C round was not a straightforward thing. And along the way, obviously, the, the longer we waited, we had more sophisticated investors who also saw the commercial traction, the thesis, how it helps. We have a few strategic investors like Optum and, and Anthem. They believe the, the thesis and the specific problem more than we had originally pitched our original investors because we evolved as a company. But you need to find the right people and the right milestones and the, and the right uh, kind, of, kind of part of the journey. Initially, it was more like people-focused, uh, market-focused, and, and then later on, it's more like obviously revenue-focused, thesis, like how you go to market, what are the values solving, and how you differentiate against competitors. But I would say that uh, I'm privileged to always been working with like, investors who are people first in in mentalities. They care about the commercial. They care about uh, the technology. They care about all those things, but that's the first thing they care about. And that that goes through everyone that we work with, uh, including Sequoia and GPV and Optum and Anthem and and others. They care about the people and they really people first investors. 
That's amazing. So how much has Vim raised to date? And are you looking at doing more fundraising over the next year or two? So we raised around $120 million to date. We are planning to break even next year. So that's that's on the cards for us. We don't know if we're going to raise more money. At this point, we have great investors that they bring the value that we need right now to go to the market. If there's going to be anyone who come in with transforming value offering that is beyond the money, then we'll definitely be open to talk about that. It's The door is always open for smart people who can help to bring strategic value. But for now, there's no like immediate cash needs or anything like that. Okay. And I'm assuming the team is now grown to a certain size. Can you share approximately what size the team is now? Yeah. The team is close to 160 people between Israel and the United States. And we have a team in Ukraine. We love to grow the team, but we also love to grow in a smart way, in a deliberate way, in a responsible way. We know that the market have changed a year and a half ago, and, and we've been really trying to focus on the unit economics, marching toward profitability, control our own destiny, and those kind of things. I have a few good mentors in our investors, Guidewell, Sequoia, Great Point Venture, I mentioned that. They really care about growing responsibly. So we've been following that mantra. When you are recruiting, what are you looking for? It fascinates me how different startups approach recruitment. How much emphasis do they place on company culture? Because we had a bit of an accordion over the last couple of years. People grew like this, and then all of a sudden, we have to shrink, and which is yeah. not great for the company. You're right. So we're doing something that is very unique, and there are not a lot of companies have been doing this in healthcare. So most of the people at Vim come with no healthcare experience outside of the go-to-market team. So mm-hmm. which is sales and account management, even though some of those people on the sales and account management side, they don't come with healthcare experience either. So we go culture first. The first thing is transparency to the point of radical transparency. We need to have people that are feeling comfortable in a radically transparent environment, which means the benefits are you guys get to see the board decks before the board see them. We're going to show you everything, the numbers, the good, the bad, and the ugly at all times. But it also means we're going to give you feedback. Again, good, bad, and ugly at all times. You don't wait for an annual review or quarterly review of feedback. We give you feedback in your face, and we also expect feedback in our face, wherever we are, whether it's me, a sub, my co-founder, and others. So it's a super transparent culture, and that's really important for us. We need people that feel comfortable flourishing in a very direct style environment, whether they're Israeli, Ukraine, Americans, they need to flourish in a super direct culture. That's rule number one. Rule number two that is essentially transparency is foundational for it is prospering in an idea meritocratic environment. So it means like it's not the rank that wins, it's the idea that wins. And if you joined us just yesterday and you come up with this pretty incredible idea that is data backed, um, you could literally fight for it and you would win because we're going to do that. And it doesn't matter if I came to a meeting and we had a lot of conviction on something and we said, hey, we need to get this thing done because I, I, I thought about it for two years now and I have so much conviction and and it's like that someone had just joined us a week ago saying, I don't, I think you guys are wrong. I think you guys are missing point A, B, and C in front of the entire company. We would take what you said back. As long as that person is right and say, you're right, we're wrong. We go that way. So idea meritocratic way of the, making decisions is really important for us. And we need people who are willing to step up for their ideas, work hard to, to achieve them. And because of transparency, I think this is something that we're able to do it here. So those two things are really critical. And the, 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 the thing is people who are willing to adopt change and be adaptive. And it doesn't matter if today you are on the provider side, tomorrow on the payer side, today you're building products that 
are part of the middleware or you're working with engineers and developers from third parties, like you need to be adaptive. And the, pe the people here at Vim who've been able to grow to leadership positions, they all grew from uh, bottoms up and they're all being super adaptive. That's the, the one, the number one character that people here have been successful with, which is being adaptive to change and evolve as the company evolves. If you have those three things, we want to talk to you. And whether you're an engineer or a salesperson, you don't worry about not, not doing healthcare. We're going to teach you whatever you need to know. It's not that complex. So you're, you're talking transparency. You're making decisions based on merit of the decisions. So it's like a meritocracy, like you were saying. Mm -hmm. And third thing is adaptive because things shift. And mm -hmm. it's the smallest things shift, but also the largest things shift. And then mm -hmm. those things combined have led to a winning team that can go out and conquer the market. A hundred percent. I think there are examples where organizations with a lot of hierarchy, like Amazon, like the IDF, where people can take initiative that is not defined within their guardrails and break through and create amazing innovation. And, and that's the type of people we're looking for. So even if Vim grows, even if we add more people, as long as we keep those cultural tenants in place, people are going to be able to think out of the box, do things based on their own initiative and idea, even if it, they were not told to. So even if you're fresh out of the boat, back from the military, but you bring those tenants, we, we want you at Vim. Yeah, I agree. I, I was working for smaller organizations and I got to Amazon, massive organization. I was able to innovate faster than sometimes in the smaller organizations that I worked for. And that is deliberate in terms of culture. And, and so I, I really respect you for that. We, we don't have too much more time. What are the kind of things that are exciting you? What's next for Vim? What are you looking at? I, I, are you like everyone else looking at generative AI? Give us some little nuggets and insights to what's next. Absolutely. Our manifesto, the road we've been marching on is we want to be the app marketplace in healthcare. We want to be the Apple app store in healthcare, the place where people can deploy their app and make them available for a lot of clinicians and payers to use. So the first step for us was to build a footprint. And mm -hmm. thankfully we've been able to break through and build likely one of the largest connected provider footprints in the United States. And, and it's going to continue to grow next year. And then we have connectivity to the majority of the payers in the country covering uh, close to 200 million. So that's step one, right? Step two, which is going to happen next year, we're going to open our SDK to the world. So technology companies, large and small, can build their app at the point of care, get access to data, get access to clinicians, get access to workflow, and deploy their applications. What are they doing? Physician decision support with AI as a physician co-pilot. Where are they recruiting clinical trials? They want to dispatch car ride or provide a home delivery for a drug from surgical products, whether they want to uh, provide an, a remote patient monitoring device and, and get the results back into their EHR. All those different companies are builders in healthcare that we want to power. So there are going to be some people going to use AI more heavily. At the same time, we are building, continue to build our stack with generative AI. That's another big investment we have at the company right now. So instead of our ability to support X number of new EHRs every quarter, we want to 10x it by leveraging different tools that are now available, large language models that are now available that helps it to learn faster about different workflows and different opportunities within the clinical workflow to then expand to more and more different EHRs and different interfaces faster. We've been focused on EHRs in the ambulatory side. What about post-acute? What about emergency departments? Uh, what about home care? What about behavioral health? There are a lot of areas where 
we're getting a lot of customer demand to build and there are hundreds of different EHRs. So we want to go to all those different segments, but we just don't want to go there with the same, let's just hire more engineers. We want to get our existing engineers and some of the others we, got, we, we are hiring right now to be smarter and faster. And that's where we're incorporating a lot of AI in our engineering work. Wow, that's a very exciting vision. And I think it's also very enabling as well for others to enter. The first thing that the doctors learn when they go to med school is do no harm. And that's one of the reasons innovation takes time in healthcare because everyone's conservative by definition. But if you can implement this platform so that these new innovations, part of that sort of uncertainty, you've taken away that uncertainty. You've made that for all the people who are caring about privacy or whatever they're caring about, they don't need to worry about that anymore because they've already got comfort with your system. And then we can fast track innovation which will be better for clinical value for everyone, right? hundred percent. That's definitely what we try to build there. And the other thing is also getting to the realization that we alone won't be able to solve everyone's problems. And if anything, we could solve the enablement problem, as you said, Guy, uh, which I think is very similar physics to AWS, right? building the foundation that everyone could use to solve their problems yeah. and, and you guys just becoming the biggest enabler. And I think that's a really exciting vision for us and what we really try to pursue very deliberately in the, in the marketplace. This is fantastic. Listen, we're basically out of time, but is there anything that you need or you want to pitch for? Is there, are you looking for employees, funding, customers, open mic? This podcast has actually got a really nice reach now. So if, if you're interested in attracting any of the audience members to reach out, what would it be for? Yeah, I think the number one need that we have right now at Vim is smart engineers who, who answer those core tenants I, I talked about. Whether they live here in New York or they live in, in Israel, we want them to come and, and try to do something great in healthcare, try to do something that can scale. Already today, touches 20 million patients. Next year, it's going to touch close to 100 million patients. This is the type of things that we're working on here. So if you're a smart engineer that is motivated and eager and love transparency, love the, the meritocratic uh, a way of making decisions and, and is adaptive, uh, we want to hear from you. That's the number one priority for us. And, and, and the added bonus is you'll get to touch and impact positively humanity and patients' lives as well. I hope that people listen to this and reach out. Oron, with that, I want to thank you for joining us on the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. I love this conversation. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Guy, for having me. Uh, same, same here. I love the conversation. Thanks for joining us today for the AWS Health Innovation Podcast. If you want to get in touch with AWS, please check out our show notes where you can find a link. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is to share it with your colleagues and friends. We also really appreciate your reviews and ratings wherever you listen to podcasts. We love hearing feedback from our listeners, so please don't hesitate to get in touch. Again, you'll find all the details in our show notes. See you next week.